Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, March 3rd. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. This week, Mayor Gondek gives us her thoughts on the release of the provincial budget earlier this week and the impact it will have on the city of Calgary. If you're looking for a job, Calgary Transit is hiring as they work to get service back to pre-pandemic levels. But as routes and services change, is the Calgary community still being well served by public transit? We'll talk about the evolution of transit with Willem Klumpenhauer from the University of Toronto. And finally, could the amount and quality of sleep you get on a regular basis be tied to your life expectancy? We catch up with sleep expert Dr. Frank Chen for details on a new study that says that may be the case. Is the latest provincial budget good news for the city of Calgary? To talk about that and all things affecting the citizens of our great city, we are joined this morning from City Hall by Mayor Jody Gondek. Good morning to you, Madam Mayor. How are you? I'm great, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Actually, I think you're in your car on your way to work, aren't you? I am on my way to an event, having just done a global interview. Oh, you are very popular on Fridays, that's for sure. So thank you for (laughs) taking some time out of your schedule. Appreciate it. Uh, Big budget that came down this week, and I know there were hopes for some money, specifically for things here in our city, that didn't come down. Did you find, though, the budget was a good news one for the City of Calgary overall? I think it was kind of a holding pattern budget. I, I don't know anyone from any municipality that's particularly thrilled about it. I would have to say that um, we have seen the value of our downtown properties increase since the city has created its downtown revitalization strategy. I can tell you that the provincial government is benefiting from that increase in value of downtown property. So I continue to be surprised that they're not willing to invest with us on even more programming. All right. So the programming side of it, anything else you'd hope to see from the budget? Well, you know what? I have learned to be uh, tame in my expectations from budgets. I'm happy to see that there's continued investment into uh, mental health and addictions. Um, We were happy to see a little bit of investment into examining the opportunity for a north-central Calgary, Rocky View and Airdrie regional health facility. So there was some good news. We just could have used a bit more. Um, event center is one that we we didn't hear anything in terms of a promise from the province of funding in any way but you did in fact meet with NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman earlier this week I believe it was can you tell us what that meeting was all about it was one of those uh, meetings that you have when someone's in town to say hello how are you doing Um, it was very clear that all of us understand how important it is to have a new facility There's many opportunities for concerts and programming in addition to hockey that we could be taking advantage of. So it was a very friendly conversation. All right. To that point, and I'm not sure if we have any more details or if this is something you can delve into, was, uh, you know, a couple of years, well, probably six years ago, the talk was the west side of town, uh, the west village, so to speak. And then, of course, east village when it comes to the event center. Are Have we pinned down an exact location or is that west village been reentered into the convo? So there will be an event center committee meeting coming up in the next few weeks, depending on um, how our consultants are doing in terms of compiling all their information. So um, once we are able to release anything publicly, I will be sure, along with uh, Chair Sonia Sharp, to let the public know. So far, um, there's nothing to report. The conversations carry forward. And as I said... I'll let you know when I know. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about Nordstrom. We were just having a conversation about uh, Nordstrom closing, well, across Canada, but that's certainly going to affect us here in the city of Calgary. Do do you see sort of, you know, is there 
a golden a, a silver lining, I should say, to to this story in terms of the other businesses, the restaurants, et cetera, that are opening in the city. I mean, we seem to be bouncing back quite well. We do see um, a lot of positive activity in the retail space and, and restaurants and hospitality. I would say that I hope what's happening is that Calgarians and Canadians in general are taking advantage of shopping local and that they are investigating local brands and, you know, choosing local designers. And maybe that's why we don't need the big department store type of model anymore. I like to be eternally optimistic. So that's what I'm hoping is happening. But I think this is proof positive, uh, Mayor Gondek, in the sense that we, we are past the pandemic. But that's not the magic wand that if you made it through the pandemic that your business is safe due to the economy and the climate we're in. Well, I think we all need to be realistic that Calgary was in quite a depressed state, um, economically speaking, before the pandemic even hit. And so we have a lot of work to do on our road to recovery. I have been incredibly impressed to see how many different types of businesses and people have located in our city over the last few years and how many of them continue to have confidence that they'll stay here, that they're increasing their labor force. So we are on a positive trajectory. We just have to be patient. Wanted to ask you about this. Uh, You took to Twitter this week expressing frustration with the current street harassment bylaw. What what was the issue on that one and, and how the city's going to address it? There are a number of Calgarians and organizations that have expressed a lot of concern about how, um, you know, there's, movements that are rooted in hatred and just trying to shut down um, how people um, choose to engage in public spaces and the term harassment has been thrown around the street harassment bylaw was intended to make sure that everyone is in a position of safety when they're out at a public space and that's just been jeopardized over the last several weeks and so my question was really is there a gap in this bylaw that we can't enforce it what's happening and so what I can tell you is there's different interpretations of what harassment is and we've for far too long relied on the victim to step forward and say this is how I feel and instead I think we should be focused on what type of behavior is and is not acceptable in a particular setting so it's really turning everything on its head Mayor, before I let you go, I want to delve into this because we've had some great response on our text line. Um, a lot of us like to sleep every day. Um, and so we, we did a segment to kick the program off about sleep and a new stat that said it can, uh, you know, increase the length of your life. In fact, for women over two years, if you get consistent uh, quality sleep and for men over four years. I can understand with your position uh, that it is quite stressful. You've got a lot on the go. Do you get a good night's sleep? And if so, how do you? You know, there's generally so much that goes on in the day that I'm fairly tired by the time I get a chance to sleep, and I do try to get a solid six hours every night if I can. Um, You know, if there's not incredibly pressing things that are keeping my mind churning, I do sleep well, so I would highly recommend sleep for everyone, as you just said. (laughs) Each and every day. I'm curious, how, on average, how many hours of work would you put in per day? Because I I know it's it's a very, it's a busy and sometimes thankless job to be the mayor. And uh, we've had past mayors who pretty much put in, you know, 26 hours of work a day. So I'm curious, (laughs) you know, have you found that work-life balance or how many hours do you put in? Because it's far more than an eight-hour day. I think it's important to recognize that there's positions, including being the mayor, where balance is a bizarre concept. But I think you have to take time to find joy in the things that you do daily. Um, Life is very heavy right now. 
And so if you can find those opportunities where there's some good news and some positive stuff happening, that just keeps you going. I think the, the concept of balance is too hard to achieve. So you have to find the good in the things that you do. So true. And, and to that point, and I remember speaking with, for example, I was uh, Dave Bronconye when he was mayor a, a couple of years ago, as you can imagine, <laughs> it was way back uh, when he was telling me that uh, particularly during festival season and when there's events going on, he can do a stampede breakfast at 630 in the morning and then be at a gala till 10 or 11 at night. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember my first uh, parade day as the mayor. I was on the grounds at 530 in the morning and left at about 11.15 that evening and went to so many different things. Um, but you know what? I like to walk or, you know, sprint to the stuff I need to get to, so I like to get a little bit of exercise in there too. And I highly recommend you keep a pillow in your trunk. It <laughs> always comes in handy. Thank you, Mayor. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You guys as well. Take care. Thank you. That is Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek. The pandemic changed the way we work and commute, and a lack of transit ridership has resulted in decreased revenue for transit systems and forced cities to cut or reevaluate services. To discuss the issue, we are joined by Willem Klumpenhauer, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto's Mobility Network. Good morning to you, Willem. Good morning. Well, let's break this down. Do we, do we point all fingers completely at the pandemic, or are there other reasons for the widespread public transit service and the reductions we've seen in Canada? Yeah, I think there's been sort of structural issues, especially with the way that we fund transit in Canada that really got exacerbated uh, by the pandemic. And the big one being the sort of transit's reliance on ridership and fare revenue in Canada. Um, and, and, you know, when that gets unstable, when that goes up and down, that, that throws a lot of things into chaos. I mean, how does Calgary, do we know, do we have stats how Calgary might compare to other major cities? It had to have been difficult in every city, but have some made up for lost ground and lost time? Certainly. Um, you know, Calgary, I think, probably sits a little bit in the middle of the pack. Um, there's there's some examples where ridership has recovered uh, significantly, in fact, higher than 2019 levels. Brampton's a great example of that. So that goes to show that there's places in Canada where, you know, this recovery is possible and that that provides hope for other agencies as well. Okay, so when you when you say, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're getting along, we're looking and we're re-evaluating to a certain extent, that's fine. That implies that, you know, something has been broken or, or needs to be fixed. Uh, but a healthy transit system, can you put a measurable, I guess, example together as far as how important a, a healthy transit or a robust transit system is for a city? How important is it? How important? It, I, I think it's vital. Um the way that cities work is we need to make good use of the space that we have, right? We want to live close together in cities. And so we need to get around those cities and we need to do that efficiently. And there's just no way that that can be done in larger cities with, uh, with just, just a car, right? You can, you can see examples of that in, in Los Angeles is, is probably the classic example. Um, and so a healthy transit system, you know, gets people to where they need to go in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, there's a measure of usefulness, right? And, and that's a hard thing to pin down in terms of a numbers concept, but um, I think you kind of know it when you see it. The transit system gets you to where you need to go and it does it reliably and you can trust it and it feels safe. So what happens then, in the contrary to that, when a city doesn't have a robust transit system, what can be the negative reaction? And it must be a chain reaction that could potentially go on and on. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a... Uh, uh, 
basically a backwards feedback loop that happens. So, you know, people need to participate in activities. So one of the things that happens is uh, if there's not good transit access for people, especially for marginalized individuals, people will do less do fewer things, right? And they will not be able to, to participate in society in the same way that they might want to. Um, obviously, that's a, a very negative impact that's bad for all kinds of reasons. And then the other one is is a more sort of uh, visible one, which is road congestion, right? People will switch away from transit and often the car, especially in North America, the car is the other attractive option for people. And so, um, you know, roads get busier and there's a, there's a big negative feedback loop that happens there where it's very easy for you know a place like Deerfoot to get congested and then you widen it um, and then it just gets congested again because mm. um, cars fill up a lot of space uh, compared to for example you know a human being doesn't take up quite as much space right so, so is that what you you define as the death spiral then yeah the death spiral that that we've been talking about a little bit is is this sort of death by a thousand cuts thing that happens with transit so if you reduce transit service and you rely heavily on fares then you know you reduce service. That's a direct link. People will take it less, which means you have fewer riders, which means you make less money, which means you cut more service, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's sort of a second feedback loop that's happening right now, and that one was exacerbated by the pandemic, which is this labor problem, right? So mm. um, right now there's a shortage of workers, which means if you're trying to provide lots of service, the the workers that are there, the operators that are there, have to work more, um, which leads to potentially higher attrition, more retirements. People don't stay on as long, um, which means you have to hire again, and you can't run as much service. So, so it's a bit of a double feedback loop that that transit agencies are facing right now. On the topic of bringing it back to you know uh, pumping in some uh, energy, if you will, new life into transit, Calgary has a route ahead plan. They're calling it under review, meaning reducing routes into communities and increased transit frequency on the major routes, which means some Calgarians will have to walk further to catch their bus, for example. Is this uh, you know a move that will help the transit system and increase ridership, or does it make sense for the community? Yeah, what you're talking about there is this classic trade-off between, you know, what we call coverage, which is being near a stop, and frequency, you know, basically how often the bus comes, which is pretty much directly connected to ridership. If your bus comes way more often, more people will ride that route for sure. And so there's that trade-off to be made. And and I think, um, you know, in North America and in Canada, we've, we've been very coverage-focused, and Calgary, I know, has been very coverage-focused. They have that baked into some of their policy. And so now they're contemplating this adjustment of saying, hey, you may have to walk a little bit further. Uh, it may take you take you a little longer to get to your to your bus, but the bus will come more often. It will move faster. It will get to, to where you're going um, faster, in theory. So, um, you know, that's a trade-off that I think can provide more efficiency, and it's definitely ridership-focused, um, which, you know, from a revenue standpoint, makes makes sense as well. Willem, is there a city that's comparable to Calgary that's doing it right that we could look to for an example? Oh, that's a good question. I think I think most North American cities with sort of the level of sprawl that Calgary has are struggling as well. So, you know, Denver being a, a classic example, um, that, a comparative example. So I, I think there's not too much. I think, again, we have to look to Brampton. What they did was, you know, they looked at frequent grid service. So they looked at moving people instead of just in and out of the downtown, sort of like Calgary's design right now, to move people sort of from many to many places, right? So um, getting a grid where you sort of take one bus and transfer to another bus, and then you're at your at your place and those buses come often. That's kind of the thing we need to look look towards. Interesting conversation. I think all Calgarians have some stake, uh, large or small, within that conversation. Thanks so much, Willem. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Sue. Willem Klumpenhauer, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto's Mobility Network. Mm-hmm.
Oh, wait. Uh, did you wake up this morning feeling rested? Did you sleep through the night? According to a new study from the American College of Cardiology, sleeping well could have an impact on your life expectancy. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Frank Chen, clinical fellow in medicine at Harvard Medical School. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good morning, Sue and Andy. Great to be with you. Thanks how, for the interview. How was your sleep last night, by the way? Uh, it was good, yeah. Um, I I think I got the uh, enough hours, but, uh, you know, the quality probably could be a little better. <laughs> I think that's probably all of us these days. There's a lot of stress in our world. What is the correct number of hours? What, how much do we actually really need as adults? Yeah, so I think that probably honestly differs from person to person, but at least, you know, for the average adult, most uh, medical societies, including, you know, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, is probably recommending we get around seven to eight hours. Now, some people probably do, you know, better with a little bit less, and some people do better with a little bit more, but sort of that that's the average um, they're recommending. Dr. Chen, I want to get into uh, some sleep habits and some sleep, as they call it, hygiene that can promote healthy sleep for us. We get up at three in the morning and our listeners. But before we get there, what got our attention and I get the American College of Cardiology magazine delivered to the house, doctor. So <laughs> I was flipping through the pages and we did see this about uh, sleep and lifespan, longevity. Uh, this connection, I'd never heard of this before. Can you break down the results of what they found? Yeah, so basically this study, we, we took a, um, a large data set from the Centers for Disease Control in the United States where they kind of surveyed people annually um, on behaviors like sleep and then followed them up um, for uh, to look at, you know, when did people die and, and what did they die of? And then essentially, you know, the factors we looked at was, uh, as I mentioned before, the sleep duration, seven to eight hours, um, you know, if you had reported difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, um, if you use sleep medications. And then the final one you had alluded to was whether you woke up feeling rested. Um, and then we sort of categorized people into whether they had ideal levels of these behaviors or, you know, less than ideal levels. And what we found is that on average, um, if you if someone had all five of these factors, their life expectancy was um, significantly longer. So uh, about 4.7 years for uh, men and then 2.4 years for women. What exactly is it, doctor, that's allowing people to live longer with better sleep? Is it like, well, I guess, you know, on the contrary, what is it about having poor sleep habits that can, you know, cause us to live less in, in length? Is it What is it doing to our body, I guess, is what I'm asking you. Yeah, great question. So I, I think in in uh, kind of the basic sense is that it you know sleep is extremely important for you know affecting a lot of the usual kind of what we call homeostatic um, mechanisms in our body. So you know our hormone levels, our blood pressure, our blood sugar levels, stress hormones, for example, is a big one. And then I think it's also tied to other um, behavioral factors. So you know um, some of some people might be familiar with this, but when they're sleep deprived, they might be more likely to reach for that unhealthy snack or, you know, drink a soda or, you know, drink too much alcohol, um, it's more likely to smoke a cigarette. So I think it's probably in some ways also linked to those factors. And then 
more, I think, important from a clinical standpoint is, you know, um, things like sleep apnea, which oftentimes affect um, our quality of sleep, is probably um, very much un- underdiagnosed and is linked to a lot of um, other health conditions like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, as well as um, things like um, cardiovascular disease. So probably a lot of those factors are kind of playing into uh, why we see this life expectancy difference with um, people who get uh, high quality sleep versus um, less so. All right, let's uh, let's break this down. We're talking with Dr. Frank Chen, who knows what he's talking about when it comes to sleep. It's it's some for some of us, and we we don't like those people, our coworkers, or maybe our spouses, who can knock off in four seconds and sleep through the entire night and get up rested. Um, a lot of us, it is troublesome. How can we set ourselves up for success, Doctor Chen, to have a good night? Yeah, start? yeah, great, great point. I, I think obviously, you know, the the most important thing from these kind of findings is you know getting people to um, all get high quality sleep. There's a few. Um, things that uh, I think everyone can can try and and maybe worthwhile doing um, obviously you know a lot of these are probably easier said than done but things like um, not having too much technology um, in the bedroom especially near bed uh, bedtime um, you know TV cell phone um, not drinking caffeine or alcohol near bedtime um, making sure we're not eating too big of a meal near bedtime because um, a lot of times, you know, if someone gets uh, some, some kind of acid reflux symptoms, that could, you know, make their sleep quality worse. Um, and then, you know, uh, perhaps less relevant to some of us, but, you know, some people may nap during the day, but just kind of making sure we're not taking um, too long of naps so, because that can re- really affect how well we can sleep at night. And then... Um, you know, it's probably becoming more popular, but some people are doing meditation near bedtime, and you know that can help make sure we get into that um, you know sleep mindset and um, you know sort of kind of put the stressors of the day behind us. And then getting enough physical activity um, is often very helpful as well. So then, as you say, sort of, you know, meditating before bed, does that mean then, is it true that, you know, stress, anxiety, any kind of mental health factors we might be having, does that play a a factor in our sleep quality? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that, you know, a lot of the patients I see in my clinic will have, you know, if they have symptoms of anxiety or depression or they have a diagnosis of these conditions oftentimes you know one of the main manifestations of their some um, of their mental health problem is they have poor quality sleep or sometimes they sleep a lot but they just you know still don't feel rested um, the sleep apnea I mentioned um, is probably one other thing that um, is underdiagnosed mm-hmm. but we can you know try to identify and treat people better for that and then obviously, you know, in the past few years with COVID, um, that's ha- that has caused a lot of um, stress for, you know, everybody and, and probably in some ways have, have worsened sleep for a lot of people. And there's also some new data suggesting that, you know, probably one manifestation of um, long COVID could be um, its impact on, on sleep as well. So um, there, there's probably um, more research that can be done there. We have about 40 seconds left, Dr. Chen, but we've got a great text from David. Do you have any sleep advice? And again, it has to be brief, but any advice for those who work the graveyard shift? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, that is tough. And, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of healthcare professionals often work those um, late shifts or, you know, uh, overnight shifts. Um, I think a lot of the same things I mentioned before still apply, although, you know, obviously it's going to be shifted around like you're going to be doing them in the mornings instead of in the evenings. But I think making sure, you know, I, th- I think probably technology, especially for a lot of us, um, you know, work who are still, still working is probably one of the biggest things because, you know, we're kind of glued to it because of work or school. And I think, you know, just taking some time to, you know, put that away for a bit and then kind of letting ourselves get into the sleep mindset will be very helpful. Thank you so much for your time this morning, doctor. Hopefully uh, uh, through the weekend, we can all get a little bit better sleep now. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you, Dr. Frank Chen, resident physician in internal medicine at Beth Israel uh, in Medical Center in clinical fellow in medicine at Harvard Medical School.